This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 132, entitled The Early Christian View of God in Philippians. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast, if this is your first time here, is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Before we begin, I want to again remind our listeners that I will be participating in a live debate slash dialogue on the nature of Jesus' preexistence. This dialogue will take place on August 16th, less than two weeks away from now. For those who want to watch the debate live, you can find the Zoom link on the Biblical Unitarian Podcast Facebook page. The debate will be recorded, and it will be released afterwards for those who are unable to watch it live. Now, in this week's episode, we will explore Paul's letter to the Philippians as we continue to examine how the resurrection of Jesus affected monotheism, Christology, and the relationship between God and Christ. Philippians is admittedly where things begin to get tricky in regard to the identity of God, the person of Jesus, the preexistence of Jesus, and the relationship between God and Jesus. In fact, there is an entire book of essays looking at how Philippians is according to its title, Where Christology Began. Is Paul's letter to the Philippians the place where he gives up monotheism and the human Jesus? Or have many interpreters missed what Paul is saying by reading back into the letter much later views of God and Christ? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the Christian portrayal of God in Philippians. Philippians is four chapters long, and within the letter to the Philippians, God shows up 23 times. The Greek noun theos, which is translated as God, shows up 23 times. Now, whenever the true God is qualified in Philippians, God is qualified as the Father in every chance. In fact, God is defined as the Father three particular times. In chapter 1, verse 2, he is God our Father. In chapter 2, verse 11, it is God the Father. And at the end, in chapter 4, 20, he is our God and Father. The relationship of believers to God indicates that God as the Father portrays the believers as children of God in chapter 2, verse 15. So it's interesting that the portrayal of God as a father also portrays believers as the father's children. Now we need to look at what Christ Jesus being in the form of God means when we look in our second point today at Paul's Christology 
in Philippians, because if we're looking at how the phrase God is used by Paul, we need to understand how Jesus is related to that, especially when Jesus is said to have been existing in the form of God. Now, admittedly, on one occasion, Paul says that the enemies of Christ have their appetite as their God, kind of a lowercase g God. Their God is their appetite. In chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says about these persons, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So there is a place here to where God is not used of the Father. It's used kind of as a false God. Their God is their appetite. Paul offers personal thanksgiving to, quote, my God in chapter 1, verse 3. And in the Greek, it is to theo mu, to the God of me. In chapter 1, verse 8, when Paul wants to speak about his Longing in love for the Philippian believers, he calls on God, which is the God, as his witness. And he calls God a single witness, a martis in Greek. So when Paul wants to count the number of witnesses that God would be in regard to giving testimony to what Paul is saying is true, God counts as one witness. God is not two witnesses, and God is certainly not three witnesses. God is a single witness, according to Paul. God, of course, is the one who offers salvation, chapter 1, verse 28. God is the one who is at work in believers, working his good pleasure, chapter 2, verse 13. And as the creator of the covenant, righteousness naturally comes from God, chapter 3, verse 9. Paul tells his readers to offer their prayers, supplications, and requests to the God, chapter 4, verse 6. The God of Paul is called the God of peace, chapter 4, verse 9. And at the end, we have a benediction where Paul says, to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 20. So it seems that Paul continues to regard the true God only as the Father, only as a single person, and as the Father of Jesus. Philippians hasn't changed the definition of God in the mind of Paul, as we can see thus far. Of course, the real Difficulty is when we look at Jesus in terms of Philippians, especially in the Christ hymn, the Christological hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So let's turn our attention to Jesus. Our second point today is the Christian portrayal of Jesus in Philippians. Now, how does Paul portray Jesus within this controversial letter? Well, Jesus is called his given human name, Jesus, 21 times, depending on a couple of textual considerations. So 21 times. Jesus is called Christ, which is the term of the anointed king of God's kingdom, Christ, 37 times, which is a massively high number for only four chapters of Philippians. 37 times. 
within those 37 times, we see the phrase in Christ 10 times. We can see that Jesus Christ is actually described with Christ at the beginning of his name, namely as Christ Jesus, King Jesus. And we can see that particular designation eight times. And then in the Greek, we can see that Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ four times. So there's some interesting observations here. We can see a heavy emphasis on Christ's language. We have the participation Christ's language being in Christ. And this is because Judaism understood their Messiah to be a representative figure. The king within Israelite religion was one who represented his people. So the anointed Christ is also a representative figure. And so those are in Christ are those who are being represented by the king's redemptive and salvific activity. Of course, calling Jesus Christ Jesus emphasizes him as this particular king. And the Lord Jesus Christ is something that the Philippians, who lived in a Roman colony, would really need to hear as they struggle accepting their Christian faith when they formally were acknowledging the emperor as the Lord. To call Jesus the Lord is to say that Caesar isn't. So it's an anti-imperial Christological designation as well as a reference to Jesus' exaltation. Let's talk a little bit more about the Lord. Jesus is called the Lord, Kyrios, 15 times in Philippians. He is called our Lord out of those 15 times, 11 times. So most of the occurrences of Jesus being called Lord, he is our Lord. And that again is because the Philippians formally acknowledged Caesar as their Lord. And at the writing of Philippians, the currently reigning emperor was Nero. Nero was their Lord. But now Paul is trying to get them to see that Jesus is our Lord. We also can see that believers are in the Lord nine times. In the Lord also designates the participation of believers in the sphere of the Lord's redemptive activity. It's very similar to being in Christ. Now we have in the Lord. It's also interesting to note that Paul calls Jesus the Savior in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because up to this point, Paul has never referred to Jesus as the Savior. Why does he all of a sudden begin to acknowledge Jesus as the Savior here? Well, he's called the Savior and the Lord who is coming from heaven to transform their body from their humble state into conformity with the body of Jesus' glory in 3.20-21. And again, it's important to note that Savior and Lord were key Caesar titles. And so by calling Jesus the Savior here, he is taking away a title that formerly was given to the emperor, and now Paul is giving it to Jesus. That is why, arguably, Jesus is called the Savior here. We, of course, need to spend some time in the Christological passage of Philippians 2, 5-11. through Older scholarship assumed that this was a pre-Pauline hymn. 
meaning it's something that was already written in, in circulation prior to Paul taking it and putting it into Philippians. But modern specialists on the letter to the Philippians have noted many subversive and anti-imperial elements in the hymn that are characteristic of Paul's Christian discourse. And these specialists have concluded, rightly in my opinion, that Paul was indeed the author of the hymn. I have dedicated about a half dozen episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast to discussing the hymn in Philippians 2, 5-11. So those listeners that are seeking a detailed exegesis should consult those earlier episodes. I won't be offering anything new in terms of analysis in this particular episode, but I can certainly summarize the details of how I find the evidence convincing. So let's look at each of the verses within the Philippian hymn. I'll start in verse 5, chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This, I think, is the most crucial point of the hymn. The subject of the hymn is, quote, Christ Jesus, end quote. Namely, King Jesus. Christ, of course, refers to the anointed king. Jesus was anointed during his earthly ministry, during his human historical ministry. Jesus, along the same lines, is the given human name, and this indicates the person who historically lived and breathed, as we see in our four Christian Gospels. Paul, as we have observed in 1 Corinthians, does indeed possess a wisdom Christology. So Paul could have portrayed Jesus in terms of personified wisdom, which did pre-exist Jesus' conception. Paul understands Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom, but wisdom at this time was a personification. So the pre-existence is the pre-existence of a personified attribute. But Philippians 2 is not a hymn depicting wisdom Christology. The subject is not the wisdom of God. Rather, the subject is Christ Jesus. And Jesus is his given human name, and Jesus was anointed by God as the Christ in his earthly ministry. So where does Paul situate the Christology of this particular hymn in Philippians 2, 5-8? Answer, in the ministry of Jesus while he is here on earth, as we can see in the four Gospels. It does not begin talking about some sort of prehistory or preexistence. That is the most crucial point that we need to begin with. Moving on to verse 6, which says, Who, while existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited. The opening who, this relative pronoun, refers us back to the subject, which in chapter 2 and verse 5 is Christ Jesus, the human historical Jesus. This situates us specifically in the earthly ministry of Christ, not in a time before Christ was born. The phrase, while existing, is a present participle, again indicating a setting of the stage to refer to the existence of Christ Jesus. The verb used by Paul here is 
iparkon. And while there is a perfectly good verb for pre-existing, pro-iparkon, Paul does not use that verb. Paul used the verb for existing, while existing. Christ Jesus was existing or functioning in the form of God. This, of course, distinguishes Jesus from God. If Jesus is existing or functioning in the form of God, then God is someone distinguished from Christ Jesus. But there is something about God, namely this form, in which Jesus was indeed functioning. The Greek for this phrase, form of God, is morphe theu. And morphe, the word for form, is frustratingly rare in Paul, only occurring in Philippians 2, twice. Once for Jesus being in the form of God, and again for the form of a servant in chapter 2, verse 7. The Greek noun, morphe, does have a closely related cognate verb, morpho, which Paul did use in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19, where Paul says, My children, with whom I am again in labor, until, here it is, Christ is formed in you. Galatians 4, 19. So Paul desired that Christ would be formed in the midst of this believing community. And what Paul meant was that Christ's character and Christ's attitude would be exhibited within the community of faith. So it makes sense that if Paul used the verb morpho to refer to someone's character and attitude, then the corresponding noun, morphe, would also mean, in Paul's mind, to refer to attitude and character. If we plug this in to Philippians 2, verse 6, assuming that Paul is being consistent with his arguments, Christ Jesus is functioning in the sphere of God's attitude and character. Now we can begin to make some sense of the Christological hymn. Jesus was existing within the sphere of God's attitude and character. Now in Judaism there was a widespread understanding that the Israelite king, the anointed king, shared a special bond with Israel's God. Namely, that God would invest his attributes and prerogatives into the Israelite king. You can see this throughout the Old Testament. So for Paul to say that the anointed King Jesus was functioning within the sphere of God's attitude and character... That is something that would fit within Second Temple Judaism's understanding of messianic kingship. Now the next noun that is slippery is the noun in Greek harpagmos. This noun refers to either something that someone does not possess, but they try to grasp for, or it could refer to something that someone does indeed possess, but they choose to not use it for their own advantage. Older translations thought the noun referred to the former, while modern translations such as the New Revised Standard Version and the Christian Standard Bible 
are more convinced of the latter. Namely, Christ indeed possessed something that he did not use for his own advantage or he did not exploit. What did Christ possess? The verse indicates that it was an equality with God. What is the nature of this equality? The Greek in our present verse indicates that this equality is related to Jesus functioning in the form and attitude and character of God. Furthermore, it is crucially important that we keep in mind where the Christological hymn goes and where it ends up. Jesus empties himself, he dies, and God highly exalts Jesus to a higher position in status than he previously had. So, if Jesus is exalted to a higher status than he held when he was functioning in the attitude of God, in the form of God, then the equality is not an equal status in the fullest sense of the word, as if Jesus and the Father are co-equal since it would be impossible to be exalted to a rank higher than being fully equal to God. Hopefully you can see the logic there. So, scholars have interpreted this equality in chapter 2 and verse 6 as a functional equality that existed between God and the Israelite king. So, chapter 2 and verse 6 says that while Jesus was functioning within the sphere of God's attitude and character, he did not regard that particular functional equality as something that he can exploit or use for his own advantage. But, as chapter 2 and verse 7 says, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. The attitude and character of God in which Jesus was functioning he emptied himself of it. How did he go about emptying himself? Answer, by taking the form of a servant. Since we already suggested that form, Greek word morphe, indicated an attitude and character, then we can make sense of the phrase form of a servant. Jesus emptied himself of the functional equality that existed between God in the Israelite king in order to take upon himself the attitude and character of a servant. And Paul indicates with a number of allusions that this servant is a very specific servant, namely the suffering servant of Isaiah 52-53. Moving from the privileges associated with functional equality with God, Jesus is now in the likeness of human beings who, by the way, are sinful, broken, and in need of redemption. It's important that we keep in mind that everything Paul has said to describe the transition of Jesus from the attitude of God to the attitude of the suffering servant all occurred during the ministry of Christ Jesus, not from a supposed pre-existent state in heaven to a lowly state on earth. Moving on to chapter 2 and verse 8, which says, Being found in appearance as humanity, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By likening himself with sinful humanity, 
he who knew no sin embodied the sinful human condition. The death of Jesus demonstrates his mortality and his humility demonstrates his subordination to God. Now, Paul does not qualify the death of Jesus to suggest that only part of Jesus died or that Jesus supposedly had two natures where one died but the other was actually immortal. For Paul, Jesus completely and wholly died. Verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. God continues to remain distinct from Jesus, and as customary with Paul's theology, God raised Jesus from the dead. It is interesting to note here that Paul is more concerned with mentioning the exaltation and promotion of Jesus rather than mentioning the resurrection, which is clearly presumed by Paul. The language that Paul uses here indicates that the rank to which Jesus was highly exalted to is much higher than Jesus originally had in his condition described at the beginning of Philippians 2. In this highly exalted position, Jesus is the recipient of God sharing his own name, which is one of the many divine prerogatives that God shares with Jesus. Let's talk a little bit more about this name in verse 10, which says, So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's chapter 2 and verse 10. Formerly, according to Isaiah 45, it was at the name of Yahweh that every knee would bow. Now, God has shared his name with Jesus. So it is now at the name of Jesus that every knee would bow. Those included in this universal submission of creation would be three delineations, those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth. This seems to be a deliberate echo of the authority promised to Adam, according to Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. In both Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, we can see that Adam was supposed to have authority over the things that are in heaven, things that are on the earth, and the things that are under the earth. Adam was idealized and destined to exercise authority over these three different ways of dividing creation. This suggests that Paul sees the exalted Jesus fulfilling the destiny for Adam. And since Adam means human, this essentially means that Jesus fulfills the role of humanity. And then the Philippian hymn closes in verse 11 and says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The lordship of Jesus, which the Philippian readers were used to offering to Caesar Nero, is one of the goals of the knee bent and the tongue confessing. Of course, it is keenly important to note that confessing Jesus as the exalted Lord ultimately gives glory to God, namely the Father, the one who raised Jesus and exalted Jesus and promoted Jesus to this position. In other words, 
the hymn ends with a reminder that the Father is still above all, even above the exalted Lord Jesus. So while many Pauline scholars regard Philippians 2 as the starting point for Paul's high Christology, it actually seems to be a high human Christology. Paul is not describing the doctrine of the Trinity, and the passage does not detail any conscious preexistence of Christ Jesus. Jesus is a human being who took upon himself the vocation of the Isianic suffering servant. Jesus died on the cross for humanity, and Jesus is now highly exalted because of his obedient acts. So, how does Paul understand the relationship between God and Jesus according to the theology of Philippians? That moves us to our third point. Point number three is God and Jesus working together in Philippians. As we've seen in all of our letters, both God the Father and the Lord Jesus send greetings. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul describes the gospel message, the saving evangelistic message, as the word of God, and he could also describe it as proclaiming Christ. Because by proclaiming Christ, we are proclaiming the king whom God anointed and the one whom God raised from the dead. So it could be the word of God and the gospel of Christ. The regular way in which Paul portrays the relationship between a Christian and God is that Christ functions as a mediator role in between the two. Let's note this in a variety of passages within Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 11 says, The fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Jesus is the mediator. The fruit of righteousness goes through Jesus. It's ultimately to the praise of God. Of course, we saw in chapter 2 and verse 11 that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul describes his own conversion as listening to the upward call of God, or the upward call from God, which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 14. Paul also talks about the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 and verse 7. So God's peace is something that guards believers who are in Christ Jesus. And lastly, Paul says that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus functions as a mediating role between the believer and God. Along the same lines, salvation is given by God, but for the sake of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, Salvation for you, and that too, from God, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. 
That's Philippians 1, 28 through 29. Salvation comes from God. It is given for the sake of Christ. As it is typical for Paul's theology, we've seen this in every single letter that Paul has written, God is the one that raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the one that died. God is the one that raised Jesus. Of significance is the key point that God has shared his name with the risen and exalted Jesus. We saw this in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And it's important because the most exalted things that the Apostle Paul says about Jesus in all of his letters are said when Paul thinks about Jesus as the risen and exalted Jesus. It makes much more sense that after Jesus' exaltation, more exalted things are going to be said of him. But here we have God sharing his own name with Jesus. So naturally, if somebody wanted to call Jesus God, it would be interpreted, because of Paul's theology, that God has shared his divine name and the prerogatives associated with that with the crucified and risen Jesus. This is very important to understand the exalted things that Paul believes about Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God operates, according to Paul's theology, through the risen and exalted Jesus. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That's Philippians 1, 18 through 20. It seems that Paul is able to experience the Holy Spirit as another thing that is being mediated by Jesus. And only the Spirit comes from God, and God is the giver of the Spirit, according to Pauline theology, but Paul is able to experience it through Jesus to the point where it's the spirit of Jesus Christ. This is how Christ can be exalted in Paul's imprisoned body. So, in conclusion, we have observed that Pauline scholars often regard Philippians as the first key look into Paul's high Christology. However, the specifics of this Christology do not betray Jewish monotheism. God, for Paul, is still the Father alone. And there is no indication that Paul now understands God to be more than one person. Singular pronouns and verbs continue to be used to describe the only true God, as we would expect from a Jewish monotheist. The figure of God in Philippians is the Father, our God and Father, and my God to whom we pray. This God raised Jesus, promoted Jesus, and shared with Jesus his own name. This God, according to Paul, is a single witness, demonstrating that God is a single person. We also observe that Paul indeed holds a high Christology, but this is a high human Christology. 
that deeply depends on the post-resurrection exaltation. Jesus is most frequently described with the royal title Christ. Furthermore, Paul heavily emphasizes the representative nature of Christ as the Jewish king who represents his people, using the phrase in Christ and in the Lord a total of 19 times within four chapters. Paul regards Jesus as the replacement for the Roman emperor, and in doing so, Paul portrays Jesus with many titles and actions that would have been recognized by the original Philippian readers as Caesar titles and Caesar actions. The Christological hymn of Philippians 2 begins with the historical career of Christ Jesus, who refused to use his messianic status to his own advantage. Instead, he embodied the role of the suffering servant and the lowly state of broken, sinful humanity. After obediently dying, God raised and promoted Jesus, and in doing so, God shared the divine name with Jesus. This sharing meant that creation is to now bow to God's appointed Christ. And the subsequent confession of Christ's exalted lordship would ultimately give glory to the Father. As the obedient Christ, Jesus attained the destiny promised to Adam, which is the dominion over all creation. Lastly, we observe that the God who exalted Jesus and shared with Jesus the divine name placed Jesus in a mediator role when it comes to the experiences of Christian believers. Righteous fruit comes through Jesus but ultimately leads to praise of God. It is in Christ that people ultimately find the peace of God. Believers even experience the Holy Spirit through the mediation of the exalted Jesus. It seems that the position to which Jesus was highly exalted after his obedient death and resurrection is not to a place of co-equality with God, but to a position exalted above all creation to the number two spot in God's universe. Join us next week as we look at 1 Peter to see how the risen Jesus is portrayed alongside the only true God of Jewish monotheism. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote these sound truths about the humanity of Jesus and the oneness and unity of God. You can support the podcast for free, for absolutely nothing, by simply sharing your favorite episodes, by liking and leaving a review on iTunes. If you feel inclined to donate to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. I want to offer a very special thanks to Dustin Williams for his excellent post-production and editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Thank you very much. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. You folks, please be safe and take care.